Let's go to our scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at Revelation chapter 11, uh, verse 15 to 19. Revelation uh, chapter 11, verse 15 to 19, and let's give our attentive hearing uh, to the reading of God's holy word. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we thank you for giving us your word, and we also ask that you would give us ears to hear, hearts that are soft, hearts that are uh, lowly, um, and hearts that are hungry uh, to receive uh, your spiritual food. Uh, so, Lord, open uh, wide our mouths, our hearts, and, Lord, we ask that you feed us. Uh, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in our uh, series in the book of Revelation, and we're coming to the end of another series of uh, sevens, and that's the seven trumpets. And like the seven seals, uh, the seven trumpets is a symbolic vision about the end of the world, the end of the world. And some would think more about, um, okay, how do we predict, predict the end of the world? Um, what will we see happening around us at the end of the world? How can we tell, etc.? But uh, the point of Revelation really is not that. It's, the point of Revelation is really the same as the rest of the Bible, it's to show us who Jesus is and who we can be in relationship to him. That's what the Bible is chiefly about. It's all centered on Jesus, and so is this passage. And so to, to help us stay focused on him, I want to outline our sermon this way uh, with three points. Point number one, uh, in the end, Christ is Lord. Point number two, in the end, Christ's people worship the Lord. Point number three, in the end, Christ's people uh, need only the Lord. Okay, Christ is Lord. Christ's people worship the Lord. Christ's people need only the Lord. And I hope it's obvious from the outline um, who we are trying to focus on. Uh, in the end, it's about Christ. Okay? So let's dive into point number one. In the end, Christ is Lord. Okay, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Right, this is uh, familiar to some of you if you know Handel's Messiah. This is the, from the famous Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Right. So here the, the seventh angel is blowing the seventh trumpet. And, and like all the number sevens in Revelation, it signifies the end or completion of something. 
So all the warnings, right? All the partial judgments, all the invitation to to repent and be forgiven comes to an end. It stops. Okay. Uh, the seventh trumpet, or like I said, it's the buzzer. It's the uh, it signifies the end of the story. This is the uh, post post credit scene. After which, there's no more film. This is the end of time. End of time, right? And 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 the fact that time will come to an end is something we we do kind of take for granted. Uh, even maybe in a sense more so than secular people do. Scientists have come to the consensus: uh, the universe isn't eternal. It had a beginning, and it will come to an end. Okay. Uh, and that's consistent with scripture, except scripture tells us more. It, uh, scripture, thankfully, <laughs> tells us something science can, can never tell us, what, what comes after uh, this world. What is beyond space and matter? Uh, verse 15 tells us that. The kingdom of the world, this finite, uh, non-eternal, running out of time world, has become, and that's literally to take the place of in, in the Greek, become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, meaning the Messiah, uh, the anointed one. And he shall reign, not for a finite period of time, not for a billion years, not for even trillions and trillions of years, but forever and ever. Okay. This is the end of the Christian message. This is where the Christian message find, finds its final form. Jesus is Lord forever. Um, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he preached about the kingdom, saying the kingdom is at hand, it's near. Uh, because he's here, he's, he's come, the Messiah has come. But in Jesus' second coming, where the kingdom won't be near, it's going to be literally here, perfectly, completely. It will be everything you see, uh, it will be everywhere you look. Uh, because in the end, Jesus will prove himself to be exactly what he said he was, he's Lord. The famous um, trilemma presented by the, the Oxford writer uh, C.S. Lewis, it's, it gets resolved. Right? He said, uh, Lewis said, um, you can only say one of three things about Jesus logically. He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he is who he said he was, Lord. What you don't get to call him is just a nice guy who taught nice things. You have to settle on this. Who is Jesus to you? He's either a liar a lunatic, or Lord. Um, on the day of the seventh trumpet, on the last day, it's going to be revealed. He's neither a liar or lunatic, but Lord. That's what this is telling us. He is the undefeated, unmatched, unequaled King of kings and Lord of lords. Every last enemy of God will be defeated, and Christ's purpose will remain. Uh, his purpose in creating a, or recreating a perfect, uh, peaceful, uh, Life without sin, life without dangers, life without wars, without sorrows, where everything is the way they're supposed to be, that world, his purpose for that world will come true. Why? His Lord. And he will reign forever and ever. That's the vision of the end. Christ is Lord. Um, now consider this too. The Hebrew name Lord, which is Adon, and the Greek name Lord, Curious, it appears over 7,000 times in the Bible. Uh, it's one of the most essential points when it comes to studying the Bible, reading the Bible. What's the whole point? It's not simply to know God, but to, it's, it's really to know God as Lord. Know Him as Lord. 
It's the whole point of the Bible. It's the end point of the Bible. If you understand the Bible, if you're people of the Bible, you have to understand this. He is your Lord. And in the end, uh, this will be finally fulfilled uh, for all the world to see. Christ is Lord. In the end, I don't think even uh, we'll even have a need for the Bible anymore because there'll be no more need for preaching because you, then you'll be really preaching to the choir, literally. Everyone's under the Lordship of Christ. Everyone submits to the Lordship of Christ. There's no point in... I mean, the reason why we preach it is because we resist it and you need to be reinvited into the Lordship of Christ uh, in the last day, uh, on the last day, there'll be no need for that. This has always been God's agenda. Uh, this is what this vision is showing us. God taking a people to be his own, for them to know him, not only as God the creator, but God Christ their Lord. To restore them to this covenant relationship that God established between creator and creation. Uh, see, it's really the only way God the Creator and finite creatures can come into a relationship. It's lordship. Christ must be the Lord. We must be his people. In the end, the only people who relate to him are people who relate to him this way. Those who know him as Lord. Not those who just call him Lord, Lord. Or he warned us about that. But those who functionally serve him and worship him as Lord. And, here, and that's where the second point comes in. Um, true people of Christ are people who worship the Lord from their hearts, not just saying Lord, Lord, but who worship him. And heavenly worship, therefore, is a good um, template, right, to observe and to learn from so we can see whether our worship aligns with that, right? So take a look at verses 16 and 17. And, and notice how the 24 elders, which... Right, we talked about how that likely symbolizes the people of God in the both in both testaments, twelve tribes of Israel and twelve apostles. Notice how they respond to Christ's second coming and his lordship. Uh, verse sixteen, and the twenty-four elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Okay. Uh, there are three times in Revelation where God is identified as the one who, who is and who was and who is to come. But here, there's a very glaring omission there, isn't there? God is the one who is, who was. He's no longer who is to come. Because when he comes the second time, that will be the last time he comes. Uh, there's no more coming of Christ. Uh, because there's nowhere where he won't be. <laughs> Uh, there's no presence into which he will be ushered into anymore because he will fill every presence, every square inch of the universe. He's who is and who was, and that's it. And as it says in verse 17, he will then have taken his great power and begun to reign. Okay. Taken his great power, begun to reign. How do the people of God react to that? Right. Uh, in a word, they worship him. Right. Uh, starting from verse 16, they fall on their faces. Right? A sign of reverence, awe. It's lowering yourself as much as possible. You, can, you can't go much lower than putting your face on the floor. It's not because they were told to, because <laughs> they wanted to. They felt this was the appropriate response before the Lord God Almighty. 
and they give thanks. Right? They're saying, thank you, Lord God Almighty. We give you thanks. For what? Uh, you've taken your great power. You've begun to reign. In other words, thank you for taking all the power. Thank you for assuming all control. Thank you for taking over everything. Being king over everything. Thank you for powerfully saving me and letting me be here. Right? They're, they're praising God, worshiping God for his power, and that means they are utterly humble, just as they're falling on their faces, uh, gestures. They're humbled, and at the same time, they're thankful. Okay? That's the picture of heavenly worship. And this is one way we can tell whether we really are either God's people or becoming like God's people. Are you growing in your humility and your gratitude? How humble are you before the power of God and the might of God? Meaning, uh, do you trust it more than you trust yourself? Does your pride come in the way and say, well, I can help myself, I'm fine? Or do you have the humility to say, I need God's power to live? I need God's power to be saved. I need God's power every hour of every day. Do you have that humility? Because that's worship. And that's not calling him Lord in vain. Uh, and, and are you thankful? Are you thankful that his power is present in your life and you can, you can rely on him for his power? Uh, even now in, in your day-to-day life, are you enjoying his power and his control, his reign, his lordship in your life right, over your decisions? Right? So when you think of decision-making, how, how many conversations do you have with God about your decision-making? How often do you turn to scripture uh, before you come to a decision your thoughts, your feelings, how you use your time, how you plan your career, how you parent, how you enter into marital relationships or friendships. Is God there? Do you rely on his strength to, to operate in these areas? That's worship. Humility, right? Thanksgiving. Um, humble yourself, scripture says, before the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you, right? Give thanks in all circumstances and his peace will guard and mind in Christ. Right? These are uh, commands that explain to us how we can properly relate to God and how we can properly worship him. You have to worship him in humility and in gratitude, not just with words, not just with your lips, not just with songs, in humility and gratitude. And if you are God's people, you have to grow in your humility and in your gratitude. Um, Theologians also comment on this saying, this is the moment when the saints receive their vindication that they prayed for in chapter six, right? The martyrs who pray for God's avenging because they've been faithful and they prayed uh, and, they, and they remained steadfast and persevered saying vengeance is the Lord's. Here's their vindication. Um, verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, right? The, those who got away in, in this life, got away with injustice, don't get away, will be judged. Uh, by the way, this is the only sensible, rational, moral universe where there is moral accountability in the afterlife. Because without that, right, where in a world where people get away with injustice all the time, uh, justice isn't real. Because it's not being done, right? People, if get, people get away with injustice and die, there's no justice. Justice isn't real. The only rational moral universe 
where justice is real is one where there's moral accountability in the afterlife, and God gives us that. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Right? In, in each of these, you're seeing something that's happened that's terrible and how God responds appropriately to that thing. Right? Nations rage, your wrath came. The dead got away, they'll be judged. They're destroyers of the earth, they'll be destroyed. Um, all of the, these things um, are God's answers in the form of his judgment. And, and Christ's people... Uh, thank him for it. They worship him for it. Um, and that makes sense, right? Consistent with humility and gratitude. Even if, even if you are suffering injustice, as you remain humble and say, the vengeance is not mine, it's the Lord's, and you remain grateful, you, you then enjoy the fruit of your patience here in the vengeance of God. Now, um, to anyone who might say, well, I, I still can't wrap my head around the idea that God is a God of love, who is all good, but who is also so judging. Uh, I'll submit this to you, and I've said this before. Often our statements about God's judgment actually says more about our state of privilege and comfort more than it does about the nature of God. It means we are sheltered from the contexts where such judgments are desperately needed, where such judgments are beautiful things. We don't live in North Korea. We're not in Ukraine. Uh, we're not in Sudan. But make no mistake, right? There's a necessity for God's righteous wrath and his judgment that destroys those who destroy in those areas. And just because it's beyond our fairly sheltered uh, distanced digital way of life, it doesn't mean the need for judgment isn't there. It's, it's absolutely there. So, so our sentiments about, oh, God, why be so harsh? That says more about you and your privilege and your comfort than it does about the state of the world. And of course, for those of us who trust in the cross of Christ, we, we know how exactly how God's love and his justice go together. And that takes a certain poverty, right, coming out of a privileged spiritual state where uh, you're not so rich in your spirit, you're absolutely poor in spirit because you, you understand the depravity of your own heart. And the justice upon that, that Christ suffered on your behalf on the cross. Either case, um, we need to come out of our comfort zone, our, our privileged state of mind to see the truth. Um, I read a quote by a pastor and author named Scott Sauls and it seemed relevant, so I wanted to share it with you. He said, quote, Christians in the West must understand that the relative ease of our experience is unusual. And every time we open our Bibles, it is good to remember that almost every word was written by someone who had been tortured, enslaved, imprisoned, exiled, or some combination thereof. Christians, you are people of this book. Uh, and so the more you seek to live according to it, you, your life might look like its authors. And in that, you join in the suffering of Christ. And in that, you therefore pray for his second coming. You pray for his vindication. And you long for him making all things new. That's also a part of our, it, it has to, this has to be a part of our worship. 
Otherwise, what worship becomes is you just you you worship him for the prosperity you enjoy, the success you enjoy, and the health that you enjoy. Your worship is spoiled, and it's not biblical. Right? Here's here's the heavenly template of worship. Um, you know what else? Uh, uh, here's here's another reason why they worship. Right? We have to get this because of the reward. They worship God uh, because, yeah, God is their greatest treasure, but also he gives us wonderful rewards. Uh, they say, we, we thank you for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. Okay, So Christ's people look forward to God's reward. It's not salvation. right? That's not, it's not what's being uh, offered here. They've been saved. But it's what being saved and becoming children gets us on top of being saved. It's the kind of reward that you get after you get in. Right? It's kind of like the rewards that kids get from their parents. Um, it's, it's not a reward you kids get and, and go, oh, okay, this is how I know I'm a child of my parents. No, uh, it's, it's a reward you get because your parents want to reward you. They're proud of you. They, they want to recognize you. They want to delight in you. Right? And even as an imperfect, sinful dad, I take delight in rewarding my children when they, you know, do the dishes and do their poetry recital, right? And right, how much more would our heavenly Father, perfect, sinless heavenly Father, uh, love to reward us and love to see uh, smiles on our faces? So think about that the next time you you uh, live, choose to live sacrificially or selflessly, generously, uh, be, be forgiving, uh, be serving. Uh, and, and don't just think, well, well, that's how, that's how I ought to behave. I shouldn't expect any reward for that. No, God will absolutely reward you for that. And you should look forward to that and make that a part of your worship. So on the last day, we'll be worshiping God for all of these reasons, and our hearts will be filled with gratitude, filled with thanks before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All right, um, last point. What gives us access to all of this? Okay, uh, In the end, all we need is Christ. Now, I'm telling you this not because I think it, this is just kind of this neat little nugget, like a gospel nugget to throw in there to kind of wrap up the sermon in a neat little way. No, it, I, I'm saying that because this is exactly what verse 19, I believe, is saying. Uh, verse 19 says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Okay. Let me first tell you how some people have interpreted this and, and why we um, as Reformed Presbyterians disagree with that and what our understanding is. Some people have taken this to mean uh, that before the end, before Christ's return, there will be a literal, physical third temple that's restored in um, the nation of Israel, in Jerusalem. And, uh, and that would be Christ's sort of homecoming. He would, he would descend on that physical location at the end. And, but that comes with other implications too. Um, for the third temple to be rebuilt, then there has to be a Jewish king who will command this, execute this. There has to be a Jewish prophet who receives instruction from God on what the dimensions and all that will be. And you need the Aaronic priesthood to make a huge comeback um, and reinstate the Aaronic 
uh, priesthood um, uh, somehow verify your descendant of Aaron through genealogy somehow, and then they would offer the sacrifices, bring the bring the the lamb or the heifer, and worship. But worship will be restored in the third temple. Jesus will return to that physical location in the end. Is that what this verse is assuming? And is that what the Bible teaches? Uh, we believe it's not. There are a lot of reasons. Here are a few. Okay, first, this text tells us exactly where this temple will be. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in Israel. It's not even on earth. God's temple in heaven was opened. Right. Even if you were to take this vision literally, this temple is literally in heaven, not on earth. Uh, but since Revelation 21 says there is no literal temple in heaven and God's presence is itself the temple, um, this, we can say, it should be taken symbolically. Second reason, this is an allusion to the Old Testament, uh, to the story of Jericho in Joshua 6. Our passage has seventh trumpet, Ark of the Covenant, an earthquake at the end, um, and then the, and, uh, the, the saints of God entering the kingdom of God. Likewise, on the seventh day of circling of uh, the city walls of Jericho with the Ark of the Covenant, the seven priests blow their trumpets and great earthquake, city walls come down, people of God enter the promised land. It's, a, it's, it's almost a direct parallel to say this is a template for how God in the end will bring all of his people into his kingdom because, and this is, because this is happening on a global scale. You have on top of earthquake all the signs of the, the end times, right? Uh, rumblings, peals of thunder, etc. But this is an Old Testament allusion that makes one main point. God will bring his people home. That's the main point. And if we don't make the connection, uh, we, miss the, we misinterpret the text. Third, we know from Scripture uh, that God will emphatically not restore temple worship uh, as it says in the book of Hebrews, under the new covenant, in Jesus Christ, we have the great high priest and the once and for our offering and the great tent. Um, so the old covenant, along with the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and their animal sacrifices, they're ready to vanish away, Hebrews 8.13. Why? Because Christ has come. And so he, when the moment he died, right, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. God did that. He abolished temple worship, and it's therefore, it'd be wrong of us to try to then stitch that curtain back up. Uh, bottom line um, of verse 19 is this. All we need in order to be true worshipers of God in spirit and in truth is Christ, because he's the true temple, he's the true priest, he's the true sacrificial lamb, and no more shedding of blood is needed. All you need is his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his sacrifice, his power, his name. All we need is Jesus. All that our children need is Jesus. I'd even say this, more than faith in Jesus, what you need is Jesus. Because faith can come in all shapes and sizes, and it's not ultimately uh, the size of our faith or the quality of our faith that saves us. It's not faith that saves, but Jesus who saves through faith. It's Jesus who saves through the little, tiny, mustard seed-sized infant faith, as well as huge, mature, martyr for Christ type of faith. Jesus saves through faith. It doesn't matter what kind of faith. If it's faith in Jesus, he will save. 
So don't let anyone tell you, right? Um, okay, you need to first quit your sins. Then Jesus will take you. Uh, you need to get sober. You need to commit to the church. You need to keep your word. You need to do what's right. Then Jesus will take you, right? That That's that's the same thing as telling you to rebuild the temple and, and bring your own offering. Be your own priest. Be your own representative. No, in the end, right, Christ is all you need. Um, and to close, I'll say, parents, let's not tell our children. Let's never tell our children you need to have a strong and sure faith in order for you to claim Jesus as your Savior because that makes them trust in their faith more than they trust in their Savior. That's telling them to rebuild the temple too. Instead, tell them the same gospel you should be telling yourself. We are God's people not by our words or by our works, but by his grace alone, in Christ alone. It's his grace that gives us faith that translates into words, works. But it's he who saves. Uh, Let them know and remind yourself that we are saved and sealed by God exactly the same way as our children, not by our works, not by our words, but by God's grace alone. And that there's nothing more for us to do in order to gain Christ, young or old, small or great, it says. Because Christ has gained his people by his grace, by his power, by his might. He will hold us fast. And he's all that we'll ever need. Believe that. Put your faith in that, whether that faith is tiny, huge, doesn't matter. Put your faith in that, in Jesus, and he will save you. He will save you. And, and if we can trust, right, he is all we need at the end of the world, right, if we can really believe that, then you can believe him now, trust him now, rely on him now at the end of your day, however rough your day might be, right, at the end of your week, at the end of your career, right, uh, at the end of a relationship. If, if Christ is Lord over you and he is enough for you at the end of the world, He is enough for you at the end of everything else prior to the end of the world. Trust him that way, even now. Remain humble and remain grateful and imitate the heavenly worship in this vision. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this image, this vision of the seventh trumpet and Christ. being exactly who he said he was, Lord. Uh, Help us to receive him that way and humble us, Lord, before his might. Fill our hearts with thanksgiving. Um, And if, if that's not very visible in our hearts now, Lord, we pray uh, by the power of your spirit, we will grow in, in those areas. We will grow in humility and thanksgiving. So our worship and calling you, Lord, would not be in vain. And Lord, we also ask uh, that we will see the sufficiency of Christ, that he really is all we need. Uh, Help us to meditate on him, uh, remember him, remember his words, walk with him, uh, serve him and obey him, and make him our Lord, Lord over our thoughts, words, and deeds. Uh, Help us to live this way by the power of your spirit now living inside us, until the day 
Uh, we will see him face to face until the day he will be Lord over all, until the day we will join with the 24 elders and give thanks to you. Uh, we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.